Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to open us in prayer. Our Father, we ask that we would hear from your Holy Spirit today, that you would lead us into new phases of this life that we have with you, and wherever we might come from places of doubt or discouragement or despair or joy, that today you would please bring comfort and renewal to our souls. And I ask that you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and right so that we just don't want anything to distract us from hearing your voice and certainly not a preacher or someone who's communicating. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. And before we read that... Um, I want to start by just uh, kind of giving you a, a mental picture. Um, in Boston, uh, the past couple of years, they've lifted height restrictions of the skyline. And the buildings in downtown Boston, all of the height restrictions have been lifted. And so on my way to work every day during the summer, which feels like a lifetime ago, um, I would walk to our offices and I would see a construction site which boasts now of being the tallest building in the city of Boston. It's called the Millennial Towers. And um, one thing struck me as being really interesting as I would walk daily, um, and that is the incredible amount of time that was spent on the foundation. There was an incredible amount of time in the digging and the building and the structuring of this foundation of which would be this tower which would rise, this tallest tower in Boston. And the tagline was really interesting to me. I took a picture, and I can't find it, but I, you know, I took it, and, and it said, the city rises from here. And each day I would go by and seeing how there's at one point a 32-hour straight concrete pour. I mean, it's one of the largest concrete pours in the city of Boston, in the history of Boston, and it's just incredible to see the amount of time that has been spent on building this foundation. And the reason being is because the pressures and the winds and the storms that are in that city, a structure that's that tall needs to be able to withstand all of that, all of that trauma. And we all know, and particularly the older that we get, that in life, more and more, life seems to be less sure, more shaky, less that we can point to and say, that's a sure thing. That will always be here. The truth is we don't know what is to come in our lives in the next five, ten, or maybe even one year from now. And so what I find myself constantly looking to do in life, I don't know if you do the same thing, is I'm constantly looking for something that is a sure thing. Something that I can point to and say, well, that, at least that is going to be there. At least that's a sure foundation. And in the words of the Lord's Prayer and what Jesus gives us in chapter 6 is a prayer that allows us to sense something that is sure. He gives us a foundation by which our lives and our prayer life can rise. Maybe you're in the same place. Maybe you find yourself constantly looking for something of stability. Maybe it's your job or your health or your finances or your family or your morality. And in these words, Jesus shows us 
that if our lives are to rise or if our community as followers of Jesus is to rise and to withstand the pressures and the winds and the storms that come into life, which are also real and hard, that we need a foundation that is strong enough to hold us and that we can stand upon. And the first thing that we see in these verses is where this foundation is found. We start in chapter 6, verse 13. I'm chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus tells his friends, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. They like to be seen by people when they do it. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things that you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven. We'll stop there. Where do we find this foundation? When Jesus teaches his disciples, his friends, how to pray, he taught them to pray because the one time they asked him, Jesus, would you teach us to do something? It wasn't, would you teach us to do that really cool walking on water thing or the really cool social justice thing, although that's a part of what the life, the life that, they had, that they had entered into. It was, would you teach us how to pray? Because when you pray, something happens you tend to discover something that's strong. You discover more of yourself. You discover more about your Father. Can you teach us that? That's why Jesus opens this section of prayer, and he says, I want to teach you something about how to pray, and it's going to change the very way that you've ever approached God before. The very th- everything that you've ever thought was normal in your culture about how to approach God, it's not even correct. No, when you pray, say, Our Father who's in heaven. In Aramaic, the everyday language that's spoken by Jesus, this is the word Abba, which we know is in that culture a term of authority, right? You think of people who come from the south. We have more people that come from the south into where we are probably than than we do here. Um, But when adult children refer to their parents, it's daddy this, and think of uh, J.R. from, J.R. Ewing from Dallas, I don't know. But the daddy, is the, he's, the, he's the patriarch of the family. There's an incredible amount of respect and authority that's given there. But far more than authority, Jesus gives us incredible amounts of access and relationship to those who approach God as father. And it gives such a strong foundation. He essentially says, this is where you find a true foundation in a life that's so shaky. Why? Because to call God our Father is to evoke the Christian doctrine of adoption. It's Jesus saying, if you want to fuel your prayers, if you want to make them soar, to see them rise, to overcome the very feeling of alienation that, guess what, we all feel. We all are desiring to be, as C.S. Lewis calls it, to enter into the inner ring, to be enough for people to accept us finally. For our fathers to accept us finally. And Jesus says, because of the the doctrine of adoption or faith in me alone, when you talk to God, you say, 
Papa? Abba? Dad? You've got to sit under the weight of this and the warmth of these words to begin to melt our hearts back towards God. There's strong relational capital in these words. Um, one of my daughters, my youngest, um, is, it comes to me most clearly right now. She, um, she's a very rambunctious, she's a, a spunky child. Um, that's what I learned what not to say from the last service and what I'm, what I'm supposed to say at this service as a father. Um, she's three years old. Her name is Phoenix. She's a fire bird. And um, when she wants my attention, she'll say, Dad, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. It's like a Family Guy episode. Daddy, Daddy. <laughs> and finally, when I'm not listening and when I'm working, I'm sitting on my chair or reading or doing something that isn't what she wants me to be doing, she'll get in my lap, grab my face, and put it towards her nose and say, Daddy, look at me. Look at me. And I have to just laugh because her little three-year-old breath, which is now smelling like a human breath, (laughs) moving from baby breath, it's right there in my face. And she's saying, I want you to hear me. John says of Jesus, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you are adopted into the new family of Jesus. That you receive the rights of the family name. John Calvin actually says that to call God Father is to pray in Jesus' name. What happens when we pray in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers? It's not some magical incantation that we're attaching to the prayer. No. We're saying, my prayer is poor in spirit. And it's knocking on the door of a kingdom, just like a poor beggar who, you know, has got alcohol in his breath and tattered clothes, and he doesn't deserve to be in this kingdom. And he's knocking on the door, and the people at the door say, why would we let you into this hall or this, this throne, this, uh, you know, I don't know, what do you call it, a kingdom? Um, Why would we let you in? And he says, I'm here because the king has sent for me. He knows my name. And that's what gets him in. And when you say, in Jesus' name, it's the righteous life of Christ that makes your prayer soar. And when you say, our father, it's evoking the language of adoption. And as you know, I've had uh, uh, people close to me who have adopted children. When an adoption happens... There's not an instant change in nature or behavior, is there? There is, the moment the child is adopted, an immediate status change, legal change. They're coming to the name of the family. But it takes a while to adopt the characteristics of the family. Uh, someone close to me, uh, they adopted a, a child. And, and for the first several months, this child would go into the kitchen and sneak food and take bread back to her bed because she didn't know if it was going to be there in the morning because of the home that she had come from or the homes that she had come from. But it's the love and the nature of the new home, of the new father, of the new parent who says, it's okay, I, I know that you're doing this for, for uh, you know, survival, but you don't have to do that anymore. I'm your father. I'm always going to listen to you. Climb up on my lap. Put my face to yours. I want to hear you. 
J.I. Packer, who's a theologian, says that if you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and whole outlook in life, it means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. What Packer is saying is that everything that makes the New Testament new or better than the Old Covenant, everything that is distinctly Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And when you're adopted, what happens? You cross over from misfortune to new fortune. And this is what Christians are. Christians are people that have moved from seeing Jesus as merely their example to follow to becoming a representative for us. That's why it's good news, not good advice that we receive in faith in Jesus. And here's how you pray, Jesus says, our Father. In other words, he's saying you have to let this doctrine of adoption begin to sink so deeply into the very realm of your soul, the love of God to flood your heart, and that's where you'll begin to find a true immovable, unshakable foundation. That's why John says in 1 John, his letter, chapter 3, do you see what great love? It's literally, behold, look at, look at the great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not been made known. We can't even fully comprehend it on this side of eternity. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves. They begin to relate to their neighbors. They begin to relate to their roommates. They begin to relate to spouses. They begin to relate to bosses and others within the Christian community in the way that Jesus does. And that takes time. And it takes time to allow the fatherhood of God to sink into our souls. That's why Matthew said, verses 5 through 13, verse 6, he says, this is where you find your true foundation. Pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our father in heaven. Essentially, he's saying your father sees, your father hears, your father knows. Let that doctrine of adoption sink so deep that it begins to change the very essence of the way that you approach God. Well, why do we need this foundation? That's the second thing we'll look at. And we find it in verses 5 and 7. Jesus says, Hey, friends, I'm going to tell you, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues. They love their morality to be seen by all people and on the street corners to be seen by people. But when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters because they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. When we make our Father the foundations of our lives, we begin to build on it. Our lives begin to rise from that point. But the reason why we need this foundation is because, listen, please, we all know, we've been around, 
unless we have this as our true foundation, we will find another foundation to build on. And what we have to ask ourselves is, is that foundation strong enough to hold me when the storms come and when the wind blows and when I fail, when I don't feel like forgiving and when I'm not truly receiving the love and grace of God? Is it strong in us? Will it forgive me? That's why Jesus gives the examples of the others who don't build their lives on the foundation of our Father. And what's, important, what's interesting to me is that they are extremely fastidious in their prayers. They uh, pray a lot. They have, this, they, they have a, a church presence. And yet, Jesus says, when you pray, don't babble and don't use many words like them because they think they're going to be heard because of that. And so what does he mean by the idolaters? Or some of your translations might say the pagans. Because when you think of pagan, what comes to mind? People that are without God, right? People that don't know God, the non-religious. But Jesus actually doesn't use it in the same pejorative terms that we use pagan. When Jesus tells his disciples how not to pray, he points to the religious leaders and actually says, don't pray like them. Their prayer is pagan in nature. Why? Because when they pray, it's just another form of incantation. Notice Jesus says, they pray and they use vain repetitions because they'll be heard for two reasons. One is they babble and two is because another group of people think they'll be heard for their many words. We could liken this to those who are very religious or very moral and those who are not religious or not very moral. What do I mean? When he says they think they'll be heard because they babble, it can be translated as they have empty words. So these religious people, they're essentially using prayer as a way to get from God, not to get God. It's something to receive back from God. And so the reason why their words are empty is because of the way that they approach God. You see, they approach God as an employee, not as a child. And an employee, as we all know, we're all employees of some degree, is someone that has worked very hard for their paycheck or hasn't worked hard enough for their paycheck. So on the one hand, they think they'll be heard for their empty many words. And on the other hand, or for babbling, on the other hand, they use many words. So on the one hand, they're either very uh, angry or anxious in their prayer. Angry because... As an employee, I've worked extremely hard. I deserve what's coming to me. Haven't I lived a certain way? Haven't I behaved in a certain way? I deserve an answer to my prayer. So I'm angry when it's not answered in the way that I thought it should be. Or anxious. I don't know that I've lived up to a certain standard. I don't know that I've lived the way God has, the way of Jesus or the way accordingly. I haven't forgiven people. I know, I know me. I haven't done enough. But either way, they approach God either as an employee or a cosmic life coach, but not as a child. How do we know when our prayers have been not formed as a child, but more as an employee? Well, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. When I pray, what is the reason for which God hears me? What is the reason for which God should hear this prayer? Is it because I've been very good this week? I've done a good job? 
or I haven't been very good, I haven't done a good job. And the religious think that God hears them because of all that they do, and they pray up a storm, and they use all these words. Now notice, it's not, vain repetition is not referring to written forms of prayer that have been used all throughout church history. In fact, Jesus is giving them essentially a written form of prayer for them to pray on a regular basis. It's not that it's a written prayer. It's not that it's reader response prayer. It's that it's empty. It's cold. And when it's not answered in the way they want it, it's angry. Or it's anxious. Now, which of us haven't been in that place? Lots of people that come and pray can use a lot of words, but few can say, Father, I'm frustrated, struggling, but you're my Father. I take your face in my face. I want to feel your breath on mine. And at the root, Jesus says, verse 7, they are idolaters. The reason that they pray in this way and that they think they're going to be heard is because they're idolaters. And as Soren Kierkegaard, the great philosopher, says, the essence of sin is not that we do bad things. The essence of sin is when we build our identity on anything other than this foundation of our Father. Augustine says these are disordered loves. They're loves that have been given to us, gifts, right? When we get a good gift, we say thank you but they become so exalted in our life that they are disordered in our life. And that's why we need this foundation because without this, we will make something else like wealth or power or pleasure or comfort into our own idol. And it's attempt, it's, this is an attempt to reach the throne by overthrowing the power and the authority of Christ of Christ's authority. And Jesus tells his his disciples, you don't have to pray like that anymore. Now, not long ago, uh, we were able to take my uh, middle daughter, Charlotte, to see The Lion King, the play for her birthday. And uh, we were very excited. In fact, some who are sitting in this room actually helped us go to that. They visited us and blessed us with tickets. That was an answer to prayer, true story. But in this play, there's some words that were said, and it was, really, it, was really, uh, it was really deep to me to take these in. Now, if you've never seen the movie or the play, The Lion King, you're missing out on a, a, a portion of humanity, actually. Um, so I encourage you to go, your, 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 your assignment is to go home and watch Lion King. But in this, in this play, um, Scar, who is the antagonist, uh, he gets victory over his nephew, Simba, as he tricks Simba into believing that his father's death, Mufasa, was really Simba's fault and that Simba should run away, never return back to Pride Rock, and Simba runs away and he escapes um, his uncle Scar's second murder attempt and sets up this camp far off in paradise where everything is hakuna matata, everything is comfortable, there's no worries for the rest of your day, hakuna matata. And um, Simba tries to avoid his responsibilities as future king of this really hard place. And then, with the help of a couple of friends who visit him, he realizes that this is what I have to do. I'm called back to this thing. 
And in this moment, uh, Mufasa's ghost, his dad's ghost, comes to him. He has this incredible moment where he realizes his own identity as he's looking into this lake of water. You guys, you guys know the story, I hope, right? Please just lie to me if you don't. And so Mufasa's ghost says, Simba. I'm going to channel Mufasa right now. And the adult Simba says, Father? And Mufasa says, uh, Simba, you've forgotten me. And Simba says, no, how could I? And Mufasa's ghost says, you have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place. And the adult Simba says, well, how can I go back? I'm not you who I used to be. And Mufasa's ghost says, remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember, 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 remember. (laughs) Simba had forgotten his own identity and his identity rests in someplace else. He was attempting to find it somewhere and here's a question I think we should ask ourselves. What are some of the indications that perhaps we are not entirely secure in our Father's love? What are some of the indications that we're not entirely secure in our Father's love? Maybe we really struggle with being overly critical of others. We really want control. We really struggle with critique from others. We struggle to forgive one another. We struggle to let go let go of our future dreams and and what we thought was the way things were going to be. And for one moment, Jesus is saying to you and me that when you pray, you can have a true foundation and a hope that rises because your prayer will rise because it's built on a foundation of my father loves me. I know this because he gives himself for me. Now, how does this foundation then begin to form us? Jesus tells his disciples that when this foundation is what our lives are built upon, our lives will begin to to rise or to be formed. And he actually says that in verse 7, when you pray, don't babble. And then he says in verse 9, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, this is really taken from a Hebrew prayer. The Hebrews would pray three times a day. And this is taken from a Hebrew uh, ancient prayer that actually, uh, you know, Jesus is deeply rooted in Hebrew culture and language. And so they understand when, you know, he's telling us how to pray. Okay, I understand that. Your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. Yeah, that, that all makes sense to me. It's the second half of the prayer that begins to really challenge them. We'll get to that in just a second. But this isn't the first time that these men have heard this prayer, as we just said. Most scholars agree that Jesus probably repeated this lesson on prayer with similar words. Luke 11 has another uh, kind of a teaching lesson that Jesus gives to his friends. But in this, he's showing us that prayer is far more than simply sharing our desires. The way to pray this prayer actually begins to shape our desires. It begins to form us in this way, in this foundation. And that's why the Lord's Prayer is unique. And it isn't necessarily vain repetition. It's not vain repetition to pray the same prayers. 
our church in Boston, we went through a period of time where we um, asked ourselves, what would it look like for us to pray this prayer every day for the next 50 days, multiple times a day? We saw people within our community groups who hardly, you, you really had struggled in, in relationship with, with God. And, and one gal who's a teacher in my own community group st- said that, you know, after work one day, I just stopped and I went for a walk along um, this little pathway near my work. And I just started praying the Lord's Prayer. And it turned into like a 15-minute prayer as long as I've ever prayed in my life. And it was beautiful. So as we pray the Lord's Prayer... It's not vain repetition that they're written words or that they're the same prayer that we're praying. Why? It's shaping our hearts. What is vain repetition about what Jesus is saying? Vain repetition is about the heart behind it, right? Think about those who learn to play music. Um, The way to learn to play music is just to play it. The way to pray is just to start praying. However, you can get you can go higher up and deeper in as you learn to play the same type of music from the people that you love. So you watch them play the song and, and you learn the chords of this, the songs that, that, that they play and you begin within this framework to be able to extend your song and learn how to play music uh, by basically watching the way that they do it. Through it, you learn timing and rhythm and patterns and it might not be the same way but jesus is essentially teaching them how their prayers can become musical he's teaching them timing and rhythm and patterns of how to pray and this prayer is a way for us to experience our theology our theology our belief about god is to go beyond our mind into our souls and our hearts and shape us kinesthetically as we say them and they're on our lips and as we kneel or or we come to the table And it begins to form our interior lives as we pray this prayer. It's what uh, one theologian calls intelligent mysticism. And as Augustine says, whatever else we say when we pray, if we pray as we should, we are only basically saying what's already contained in the Lord's Prayer. What J.R. Packer again says, this prayer is a pattern for all Christians. Every prayer of ours should be a praying of the Lord's Prayer in some shape or form. We never get beyond this prayer. Not only is the Lord's uh, Prayer the first lesson in praying, it is all the other lessons too. So how does praying the Lord's Prayer begin to shape our our desires, begin to form us? A few ways. First, look at that phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This gives us a joy beyond ourselves. The reason why so many of us are lacking in joy is because our joy is contained within ourselves. It's so deeply tied into my own world, my own struggles, my own hopes and, uh, hopes and desires and fears. But when I pray, your will be done and your kingdom come, this has given me a joy that's beyond me. It roots me in something far di- bigger than myself or my job or my employee employer or employees, even the struggles I have in my church community. It gives us a joy beyond ourselves. And when we say, your name be honored as holy, what we're saying is there's a throne and I want your name, God, your, you to take the glory, you to be enthroned again. There's things that I tend to enthrone. That's the root of my criticism or my uh, self-indulgence or my self-pity. But I want you to be enthroned. Your name be holy and may your kingdom come. And here's the question I want to ask for ourselves today. 
How would our lives change if we prayed, your kingdom come, and understood the implications of that? As we saw, Christ comes into our life as king, not as a cosmic life coach. And that begins to mess with our lives a little bit begins to send us to places we would never have chosen to go, into relationships we would never choose to be in, into friendships we would never choose to be in, into places of forgiveness we would never want to choose. But now I'm saying your kingdom come and my kingdom go. Secondly, it gives us a gratitude to break or to dissolve our discontentment. I don't know about you, but discontentment is a big struggle in my life. I struggle a lot to be content. It's rooted a lot in my own lack of gratitude. But what I realize is that when I pray, give us today our daily bread, it reminds me that life is probably supposed to be incredibly simple that I'm supposed to be content with the little things, that a lot of the things that I feel entitled to, to have, I don't really need. That I can be content with just what's in front of me on my table today. My father provided my daily bread. Now, notice it doesn't say my daily bread. We'll get to that in a second. But what would it be like for us if... We prayed this short petition three times a day, even, for the rest of the week. Give us today our, late, our daily bread. How would it address our self-sufficiency and comfort addictions? Now, I'm on, after today, I'm planning on going on vacation. And what's going to be a struggle for me is to not indulge myself in what I deserve on a daily basis. Like sunshine. (laughs) It is a struggle. But thirdly, when we pray this prayer, we pray for a humility that leads to victory. Forgive us. Deliver us. Forgive us of our debt, God. What are we saying there? We're saying, on the cross, Jesus, I'm embracing that you absorb the cost of my sin. That is, things that I put in front of you that I steal my identity from. And would you please forgive me for this? What would our lives look like if confession and repentance was a deeper part of our daily process, of our journey with God? And when I'm praying this, absorb my cost, it cannot be divorced from as I learn to absorb the costs of those who wronged me. That's what it means to forgive. When you forgive, it's not that you just wipe the slate clean. Forgiveness means someone has to pay. That's what justice is all about, and it's part of the nature of God. And your forgiveness as the adopted child of God means someone has to pay. And Jesus is paying that cost for you. And for you to forgive someone who wronged you, it means you have to pay. But the reason why we don't forgive is because we're not poor in spirit. We're, as one theologian says, middle class in spirit. 
It's because you don't truly understand it. Your righteousness is like tattered, filthy rags knocking on the door of the king saying, can I please come in? You say, I'm kind of worthy. They're not. And the thing that will destroy Christian community is if we approach God as being middle class in spirit, we'll be critical of others, we'll be self-righteous, and we'll be praying prayers that are pagan prayers. Now, what is some of the evil that is within me that the Lord needs to combat? Because notice he says, deliver us from temptation. Now, temptation and testing is a part of life. That's part of what makes us strengthened as, as humans and as followers of Jesus. But what he's saying here is, you know how weak I am. And when I pray this, I realize how weak I am too. Deliver me from the temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Part of the beauty, I don't know how you feel about AA, but part of, you know, we have several people who are in a church that have been a part of AA, and part of the beauty of the meeting in AA is that there's no pretension at all. You come in, and the first step is, I am powerless against my struggle and addiction. And it's funny how when we come into a Christian church or we begin to grow after a period of time and we you know, begin to become more like Jesus, we tend to lose sight of the fact that I am powerless against my struggle and addiction and we tend to think I should be better than my struggle and addiction. But the truth of the matter is Jesus says, you cannot bear fruit apart from me. You cannot overcome this addiction and this struggle. So when I pray, deliver us, I'm praying, I can't do this apart from you. I am so dependent upon you for the way that I use my speech, my tongue, my money, my dreams and my hopes. And lastly, when we pray this prayer, it gives us a community that frees us from individualism. And this is where the disciples begin to think, wait, this is different from the prayer that we heard. Because when Jesus is praying the prayer, he's praying on a vertical level at first, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he just blows them apart and says, and then say, forgive us our debts as we forgive them and give us the bread. He's not, he never once says, my father in heaven, may your kingdom come, um, give me my daily bread. Why? Because the come to follow Jesus is to be added to a a community of people. And friends, is it possible that your Christianity is largely shaped by a Western individualistic culture where you believe that the strength of your Christian faith and uh, growth is just simply dependent upon how you are behaving? But the truth of the matter is what Jesus is saying is if any one of your brothers or sisters in Christ are lacking daily bread... It's a part of your responsibility. You pray, give us daily bread. Deliver us, because if any one of us is is weak, we're all weak. We're together in this. Now, this is hard language for me, because I don't want people to bother me. I don't want to be deeply connected to people that I don't want to be connected to. And this begins to transform my selfishness, though. How important do you think community is to your spiritual formation? Why? How different would the Lord's Prayer be if it had started, My Father 
in the heavens <laughs> make me really good. Virtual community can greatly hinder our genuine connectedness to one another. Now, lastly, how then can our prayer rise? And this is what Jesus shows us. This is what we see throughout this, this prayer. The way that our prayers can rise is simply this. And then we'll close. Your imagination has to be drenched over and over, and mine does too, with the understanding that Jesus not only prays Abba, Father, continuously in his life, but he shows you the love of God when he goes to the cross and he he, uh, relinquishes his right to call God Father, and he can only call him, my God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me as a child? the reason why Jesus was abandoned is so that you will never be abandoned. The reason why he gives up his right to call God my father is so that you can be brought in with all of your tattered righteousness just as you are and say, I'm righteous in Christ, my father who is in heaven. And Jesus, in the garden, he prays a prayer that is completely given to the will of God. Your will be done, your kingdom come. But he says, God, why, if there's any other way, lead me to another way. And what does he hear? Silence. And some of us might look and say, you know, I've prayed, or I've tried praying, and all I heard was silence. I prayed for healing. I prayed for my son or daughter to come home from being wayward. I pray for, for finances or for the job to, be, uh, to go a different way. And all I received was economic downturn. How then can you show me that God loves me or here's my prayer? I don't know the answer to that, actually. Because I don't want to diminish the level of pain and woundedness that you've experienced in life. But what we can say is, God loves me so much that he enters into my world and understands what it's like when he feels that heaven is silent too. When Jesus goes to the garden, if there's any other way, let it pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. All I can say is that what we can say is that God isn't absent from our times of silence and pain and unanswered prayer. And C.S. Lewis actually says in one of his books that when we get to eternity, I have a hunch that we'll spend a lot of time thanking God for unanswered prayers. What is God doing in you by maybe not answering it the way that you thought it should be answered? Probably some beautiful things, but it's really painful. And yet Jesus enters into the pain and this is why our prayer life can soar. It's why when we build our lives on this foundation, it has a lasting security and that we can begin to pray with boldness like a beggar. We can begin to pray with a humbleness like a beggar who has a great confidence. We can begin to pray with joyfulness. We can know that God invites me in onto his lap Puts, lets my nose get to his nose and listens to all of my prayer. And I'll close with Paul's words when he says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. 
And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share also in his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, you just sit still in that moment for a second. Sit still in the words of our Father. The Jesus who invites you to be identified with him, who adopts you as sons and daughters. Thank God for his father love. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would align us further with your will and your kingdom. We struggle in so many ways, Lord, apart from you, and we pray for grace to follow you today and this week. We pray that you'd help our prayer lives to soar and our lives to soar on this foundation. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a moment of response. And as you come forward to the Lord's table, you receive the bread and the juice that resemble the body and blood that is shed for you so that you can know your sonship and daughterness. And as you come and you receive it, you confess. You rejoice in order to repent. You receive the love of God and you repent of ways that we've made something else more important than God. We pray within community because our lives are transformed within community. Prayer teams on both sides. Let's pray and sing songs and be still. Come and kneel or lay down however you'd like to engage in Jesus. If you don't know God and you're still contemplating the words of God and the, the gospel, we invite you just to enjoy the peace of the moment and sit and ask him, God, what does it mean to me to be your child? In Jesus' name.